Welcome, I'm Jordan, and this is The Analytic Christian. Today you're going to hear a cutting-edge cosmological argument for the existence of God. I'm joined by Dr. Kenny Pierce, a professor of philosophy at James Madison University in Virginia. Dr. Pierce has defended this argument in a debate book with Graham Oppie titled, Is There a God? The link to the book is in the notes for this podcast episode. Without further ado, let's jump in. Thank you so much for joining me, Dr. Pierce. Thank you for having me. Okay, so uh, just briefly, can you tell me how this book came about? Sure. So this is part of a a series from Routledge called The Little Debates About Big Questions. And um, the the kind of founding series editor was, uh, was Tyron Goldschmidt, who kind of pitched the idea to the publisher. And he uh, kind of the, the first two topics he thought we needed were free will and God. Um, and so there is another volume that's the free will volume. And now there are several others on things like political authority and animal rights and all kinds of topics that you might see in philosophy classes in a university. Um, and so, uh, so Ty had contacted uh, me and, and contacted Graham about uh, contributing a, a volume to this series. Um, I hadn't communicated kind of individually with Graham before. We didn't really know each other, but we had interacted a bit in the philosophy journals, including over this cosmological argument. He had raised some some criticisms of previous cosmological arguments, and I'd suggested that that this one was not vulnerable to the the criticisms that he had made. Uh, And so that's kind of the, the genesis of the book. It was invited, and then we each you know, it was written in stages. So we each wrote an opening statement and we each gave comments to each other and did some revisions. And then we did the first round of replies in kind of the same way. Uh, and then the second round. How long did that whole process take? Um, it was, uh, I think, I think it was about a year uh, from when we started actively working on it to when we sent the final manuscript to the publisher. And there was probably uh, probably about six months of kind of getting organized and both agreeing and figuring out what the format was going to be before the the active writing began. So this was this was a lengthy project. I'm really glad that you all did it, though. It's a great book. Thank you. OK, so I, I hope to um, just whet people's appetite with this this argument that you're going to be offering tonight. But before we look at the argument. Um, in the book, you say that you will be defending a particular version of classical theism. And I want to know, what do you have in mind when you say classical theism? Because that may differ than what other people have in mind. Sure. So when I talk about classical theism, I'm talking about a particular tradition. Um, And that's why I say the thing I'm defending is a particular version of classical theism. It's a way of thinking about God that stands in this tradition. But it's, it's not a definition of what it takes to be a classical theist. And what I mean by this, this tradition is it's a, um, a way in which philosophers and theologians across the three Abrahamic religious traditions, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, were uh, appropriating or using 
ideas from uh, classical Greek philosophy in order to uh, defend or make sense of these monotheistic religious commitments. And so it's a way of, as it were, putting together this um, theology that's of Hebraic origin and this philosophy that's of Greek origin in order to try to construct uh, a satisfying view of the world. And so this kind of approach, you know, things that are typical or standard is that these uh, classical theists would tend to believe that God is outside time, um, that God doesn't just create the world, but somehow holds it in being, uh, that God is purely active and can't be acted upon by anything else. No one can do anything to God. And these are these are ideas. If you're thinking about um, biblical texts for for Jews or Christians, these are ideas that you can kind of find biblical texts that are more friendly to them, and biblical texts that are less friendly to them. But you maybe wouldn't arrive at them uh, if you were just looking at the Bible and not doing very much philosophy. And so mm -hmm. they're not necessarily beliefs that are included in what I call traditional theism which is the kind of um, the beliefs about God that would be shared by ordinary religious believers across those three traditions, like that God is all powerful and God created the world and so on. The, the classical theist is trying to use these philosophical tools to make sense of the commitments of traditional theism. And so in that way, they're kind of going beyond it in their, their philosophical theorizing and their, their worldview building. Okay. So when I'm just to be clear, when you're talking about classical theism, do you have in mind some of those, um, those ideas like simple divine simplicity, but a very strong sense of divine simplicity where, where all there, all these properties within God are just identical to one another. Um, so do you have something like that? Or is that too, is that stronger than the kind of classical theism you're talking about? Yeah, so so divine simplicity is a really important idea in this historical tradition. Um, but one of the things that I mean by by saying, well, this is a, a tradition of theorizing about God, that means that we can't necessarily define it in terms of like, here are the five things that you have to believe in order to be a classical theist, right? You, In order to be a classical theist, in my sense, you need to be kind of on board with the project and in dialogue with that tradition and so on. And so uh, people like Ibn Sina and Thomas Aquinas, Moses Maimonides, this, the, this kind of really strong divine simplicity is very much at the core of their thought. Um, and, and I'm not sure that I really understand how that radical simplicity view works. Um, so I, I kind of, I'm, I'm in the same tradition with them to a large enough extent that I sort of really feel the pull of that view. But then I'm, I'm kind of backing off of it. Like, I'm, I'm just not sure I, I can quite make sense of it. So, so I want to hold that God is simple in a, a moderately strong view, a strong sense. Like I want to hold that God, not only that God doesn't have, isn't made out of parts, um, but also that kind of all the attributes we would ascribe to God, like omnipotence and omniscience and moral perfection and perfect rationality, 
that all those attributes are really tightly unified. Maybe they all imply each other or something like this. And so maybe really there's kind of one property of divinity. But the, uh, and in some sense, I'm going to need to say that God's essence includes existence, which is also part of this. But do I want to say that God's essence just is existence? Do I want to say that the property of divinity is the same thing as the individual God? Um, I'm, I'm, I get kind of, uh, I, I get kind of hesitant at, at that point when we get to these really strong simplicity claims. Good, good. Well, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm in a similar boat to you. I, when I first read the book, I thought, oh no, are we, are we ha going to have to be committed to all these other um, positions in addition to like what I typically associate with theism? And yeah, it became clear that, yeah, you don't, you don't have to endorse those uh, things that you just mentioned. Okay. So that's, that's what you're defending. You're defending classical theism. Now, Dr. Graham Oppie defends naturalism in the book. So what does he mean by that term? Yeah. So what he means by, by naturalism is he says there are, uh, there are none but natural causes and causal entities, right? So, and and uh, mind is late. Minds are late and local, right? Or the, the kind of planks of his uh, of his naturalist view. And so um, he and he doesn't define the term natural, but we mean something like the sort of stuff that science studies, right? So everything that makes a causal difference to the world is the kind of stuff that science studies. Right. There's nothing else that makes a causal difference to the world. And then he uh, adds this further claim about about minded entities, as he calls them, being late and local, meaning that, you know, mental properties like um, belief and intention, knowledge, you know, acting for purposes and whatever. These sorts of things kind of they arise by this long evolutionary process that are kind of a peculiar feature of life on earth. We don't know how much of that there might be elsewhere in the universe, but we're pretty sure it's not on other planets of our solar system. It's not kind of everywhere. It's not at the root of reality. It's not the ultimate explanation of everything. Right. Um, so that's how, that's kind of roughly how he's understanding naturalism. Okay. Yeah, that's helpful. Now, we're going to start getting into this cosmological argument that you offer. Uh, but before you do, I'm going to read this quote that um, I found on page 30 that you write. You said, I think that a cosmological argument provides the strongest reason for belief in classical theism. So that's a pretty strong statement. And that's why I wanted to focus on this argument, um, since you think this is the strongest one for your position. Um, so what exactly do you aim to show in this cosmological argument that you're going to be offering? Right. So uh, my kind of particular formulation of classical theism, this thesis CT that's, that's mentioned in the formulation of the argument, is the thesis that um, space-time and all of its contents exist because of the free and rational choice of a necessary being. And the way I see this cosmological argument going, so the, the definition of what makes something a cosmological argument is that it wants to infer the existence of God from the fact that the universe is here at all. 
So we're not, this isn't like design arguments that it might be looking at very specific scientific results or features of the universe. Um, we don't need to look at any of those details. We can just say the universe is here at all. Um, and we're going to try to infer the existence of God from that. And what, uh, what my argument tries to show is that um, classical theism provides a good explanation, a good explanation of, of why uh, space-time and all of its contents is, is here, um, or as I later say, why, why history is happening. Um, and naturalism is kind of structurally incapable of providing a, an explanation of that. Um, so this isn't going to be a, a demonstrative proof of theism. It's going to be part of a broader project of worldview comparison that theism is going to have this explanatory advantage over naturalism. And I'm also not trying in this context to rule out all the other non-naturalist hypotheses that you could have. Right. But I'm trying to say this kind of well-known, much discussed, kind of widely explored view that's that's really well developed in the philosophical tradition uh, does provide a good explanation and its leading competitor doesn't. Um, so okay. that's what I'm trying to show here. Yeah. All right. Well, before we jump in, there's just this one term that's very important that we understand because it comes up in the argument. And that's this term history that you use. So in the argument, when we see the term history, what do you mean by that term? Right. So I say use history with a capital H. It's abbreviating a longer phrase, the causal history of the universe. What I mean is the the big event. So history, as I use it, is an event. And it's it's the big event that's made out of all the instances of causation, past, present and future. So all these A causes B type events, put them together in, in one big event, call it history. Uh, and, and so the question, my version of the cosmological argument, the question it's asking is, why is history happening? Okay. Let me ask you one question about that. Um, suppose someone is hesitant to want to say, in addition to all of these individual events, there's this big event. And maybe they don't want to embrace that. Maybe they just want to say, no, 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 there is no big event history. There's just events. Leave it there. Uh, is that going to impact the argument? Um, it's going to complicate the argument for sure. And it's going to mean you're going to need some other assumptions if you reject that. I want to mention first, it's it's kind of a weird thing to reject, right? Because think about an, an event, like, um, unfortunately, we're all thinking about events such as wars at the moment, right? And mm -hmm. think about how many little events it takes to make a big event like that. And, and it would be really weird to be kind of committed to the non-existence of wars. Um, because you think there are only little events and, and and they don't add up to big events, that would be a weird view. But if you did hold that kind of view, we only held the, the little kind of, uh, the little tiny events, um, you could still run the argument if you think there, if you 
think there are explan explanatory relations between pluralities. So this is going to get kind of complex and technical, but Shemikdas Gupta does have a paper arguing that grounding explanations, um, including the kind of grounding explanations, which is the kind of explanation I use in the argument, that those kinds of explanations may be irreducibly plural on both sides. So we can have a kind of plurality of things grounded in a plurality of things without individual relations between them, hmm. or a plurality of things grounded in one thing, or one thing grounded in a plurality of things. So if you have that kind of view, then it's actually not going to matter whether you have these these big comprehensive events. Um, but you will need kind of, you'll have to replace this assumption that history exists with some other assumption, right? Okay. Yeah, that's helpful. All right. So let's let's begin looking at this argument now. Um, you make two claims. And the first is that classical theism can explain history. And the second is that no version of naturalism can explain history. Now, because you're making two claims, you offer two arguments. Uh, for that first claim, you call that the positive argument. And for the second claim, you call that the negative argument. So we're going to look at the positive argument first. Uh, and I'll put it on the screen now. Okay. So if you can, just walk us through the steps of this argument. Sure. So the first claim is that history stands in need of explanation. So my argument obviously isn't going to get off the ground if history just isn't the sort of thing that, that ought to be explained, right? So that's the first claim. Now, I don't assume um, the principle of sufficient reason as a premise. So the principle of sufficient reason, at least in one version, states that everything that stands in need of explanation has an explanation. Um, I don't assume that, uh, but I do. So uh, brute facts are facts that stand in need of explanation, but don't have explanations. They're just because. So I, but I start out by saying that history stands in need of explanation. It's the sort of thing that we would like to explain. Uh, second, uh, CT. So this is my thesis that uh, space-time and all of its contents exists because of the free and rational choice of a necessary being. This provides a good explanation of history. Um, and, and if a theory provides a good explanation of something that stands in need of explanation, this is a good reason for endorsing that theory. In other words, we just favor theories that explain more over theories that explain less, right? So if it, if it explains something, that counts in its favor. And so the conclusion, and I want to be very clear about this, the conclusion is that there is one good reason for favoring my hypothesis, right? This is... Uh, which is is very much not a, a proof, not the end of the story, but uh, kind of the, you know, much more the beginning of, of the discussion about uh, whether we should be theists or atheists to say, here is a good reason uh, in favor of theism. All right. Now, let's go ahead and look at the negative argument. Um, let me switch over. There we go. Yeah, so walk us through the negative argument. Sure. So we're going to start with just the, the same first premise that history is the sort of thing that stands in need of explanation. Uh, then I claim that naturalism can't explain history. And perhaps we'll go a little bit more into the, the defense of 2N in a bit, because that's a kind of key premise here. Um, and then 3N is kind of the flip side of 3, right? So it's saying that 
when theories fail to explain things that stand in need of explanation or, or, or worldviews more broadly fail to explain things that stand in need of explanation, that's a reason against them. It's a reason for rejecting them. And so once again, we're going to have kind of one good reason for rejecting naturalism. You know, the reason we need both, uh, both views, both arguments, is to show that we have a reason for favoring theism over naturalism, right? So, you know, there are lots of kind of options for broad categories of worldviews that we might have. Classical theism and naturalism are two good ones, right? What we don't want is some reason that would kind of favor both of them at the expense of some other views, right? We want something that's going to help us decide between them. And that's why we need the two arguments to say this kind of consideration about the explanation of history accounts in favor of theism and against naturalism. Yeah. Yeah, I found that distinction where you offer the positive argument versus the negative argument. Yeah, that that was really clear to me. Okay. We're going to unpack some of the key premises, but um I thought this was helpful because you're di in the book you're dialoguing um not just with like a generic person <laughs> but uh Graham Oppie. So you say if you can defend, you say this on page 35, if you can defend premises one and two of the positive argument. So I'll, I'll go back to that positive argument. Yeah, you say if you can defend premise one and premise two of the positive argument and premise two in of the negative argument, naturalism cannot explain history. Uh, then you've shown there's no good reason for favoring or I'm sorry, there is a good reason for favoring classical theism over naturalism. Now, why did you pick out those particular premises, one and two, and then two in? Yeah. So, of course, one and one in are the same, right? And uh, so we don't need to do that twice. Um, but the, the key point here is that three and three in, I claim, don't need defense because they are... Uh, part of the kind of method of worldview comparison that uh, that Graham endorses. So we have a lot of discussion in the in the book about exactly what that method involves. And one of the things that was most interesting about the process of writing the book is that kind of I come out at the beginning of my uh, opening statement saying we basically agree on methodology. Uh, and it turned out by the time we got to the end that we have some major disagreements on what worldviews are and what worldview comparison involves that uh, that we kind of learned along the way. Uh, but, but generally, uh, explanatory comprehensiveness, explaining more of the data, is one of the values of worldview comparison that is that you know is part of Graham's account of how that method works. And so he is committed to saying kind of other things being equal, we do favor uh, views of the world that explain more things over views of the world that explain fewer. Good. All right. So now we're going to get into a defense of each premise. So starting out with premise one, history stands in need of explanation. What can you say in defense of that premise? Sure. So, I mean, generally we try to explain events, right? They're, they're the sorts of things that stand in need of explanation. And so the question is, what distinctive features might history have that might lead someone to think this one's special? We don't need to explain it, right? Um, one thing that's been suggested in the literature on cosmological arguments and 
you know, not all of them are event-based, so they're kind of different shapes and stakes. But the idea would be um, maybe there's some sense in which kind of every event, every sub-event within history has an explanation, and therefore history as a whole uh, doesn't need a further explanation because each of its bits, each of the bits of it is explained, right? Well, how would that work? That um, that each of the bits of history is explained without there being an explanation of the whole. Uh, one way would be if the chain of events went back forever, right? So we've got one event causing another, causing another, causing another, um, with no beginning. And another way would be if they went in some kind of a cycle. So the the cycle case it's easy to see why that seems to leave things unexplained. So consider one of these time travel stories where the, the person in the future uses the time machine to come back and give the time machine to his or her younger self, right? And the question is, where did the time machine come from? Who invented it? Who figured out how time travel worked? Um, right, because the um, in the time travel, the time machine exists in the future because it existed in the past, just like any ordinary object that kind of lives its life and goes through time. But it exists in the past because it existed in the future since someone brought it back. And so there's this like funky cycle of explanation going on there um, that that you know really seems like it's leaving something unexplained. Mm -hmm. You might think the infinite case is better. So suppose that um, suppose that kind of every event has an earlier cause and it goes back and back and back. But uh, I, I think the infinite case is basically the same as a circular case. So uh, one of my favorite philosophers, Leibniz, has this great example to explain why the infinite case still needs explanation. So uh, Leibniz was uh, was also a famous mathematician in addition to being a famous philosopher. And when he was a child, he would have learned geometry from Euclid's elements, just like uh, just like people had been learning geometry from Euclid's elements all, by this time uh, already for nearly 2,000 years. And so the copy of the book that Leibniz had would have been copied from an earlier book, which would have been copied from an earlier book, and so on back to Euclid. But Leibniz says, imagine Euclid didn't write the book. Imagine he copied it from a book that already existed. And imagine that was copied from another book, which was copied from another book, and so on forever. Mm -hmm. Here are some questions we might ask. Why were there ever any books in the first place? Why were they written like this and not some other way? Why is it full of valid proofs and not invalid ones? Why is it a geometry book and not a romance novel, right? And and so, you know, who proved the theorems, right? <laughs> there's there's a, a question that, that remains, even if we suppose that every book was copied from an earlier copy. And Leibniz says, Leibniz is a determinist, so he thinks, you know, you can read off the future states of the universe from the past ones. But he thinks that, you know, the states of the universe, they can be seen as, as this, like this book that with each state copied from the, the previous one. Uh, 
But even if the universe didn't have a beginning, even if we suppose that and the causal relations go on forever, uh, still there's this question about why the states of the universe are, are so and not otherwise. And so what I think happens in both the infinite case and the circular case is that if you zoom out and look at the total structure of history, the, the kind of shape that it has, then we get this, this further why question. Why is it like that and not some other way? Yeah. Uh, and that to me is, is the real puzzle, the thing that stands in need of explanation here. Yeah. Okay. And in that copying case, this I think will become relevant later. That that infinite series is a causal one, right? Not a grounding one. That cool. that will be a distinction that we that we make in a little bit. But um, okay, yeah. So just kind of we'll shelf that for now. Uh, so what about does is that all you wanted to say about premise one? Yeah. Okay. So now what about premise two? That classical theism provides a good explanation of history. How do you defend that? Sure. So. What we want to explain is why history is so and not otherwise, is thus and not otherwise right, why it is it is like it is. And there are then some, some constraints that our explanation has to meet. One constraint is that it can't be a causal explanation. And the reason it can't be a causal explanation is that all of the instances of causation are part of history. And so we would be going in a circle. We need something outside history, outside that sequence of causes and effects to explain why the total sequence is as it is. Second, we need a non-necessitating explanation. That is, we need to be able to explain history in a way that allows that it could be otherwise, because as a matter of fact, it could be otherwise. And uh, classical theism is well suited to do that. So we claim that God stands outside history, outside that sequence of causes and effects, and explains why it's so and not otherwise. How does God explain this? This, I claim, is a grounding explanation rather than a causal explanation. Uh, and I've given a, a variety of arguments for this in various works. But uh, the, the key thing here is that we just need something non-causal and what could do the work. So... What do I mean by grounding? Well, grounding, uh, as I define it, is the relation or family of relations whereby more fundamental things give rise to less fundamental things. Uh, some, some philosophers also call these building relations. Right? So the idea is that, for instance, my desk is made out of atoms, right? So the kind of arrangement of atoms and the relation between them explains why the desk exists. Not in the same way as the person who made the desk explains that it why it exists, right? Mm. Uh, not in that kind of causal way, right? So some person put it together. That's what caused it to exist. Right. But, but what is it for the desk to exist? Well, it's something about this kind of arrangement of atoms, right? What is it for a statue to exist? It's for the clay to be arranged thus and so. Uh, or if you like more sciencey examples, what is it for there to be water? Well, it's for atoms of, of oxygen and hydrogen to have certain you know, covalent bonds between them or whatever. And so these are all explanations that are not how did the thing come about, but as it were, 
in what does it ex its existence consist? What's the more fundamental reality in which its existence is rooted? Uh, and that's why we call it grounding. And so I maintain that God's act of willing, of, of willing the universe, constitutes or grounds the existence of the universe. Something like my kind of favorite comparison for this is that it's it's like the way the movements of the dancers ground the existence of the waltz. So the the waltz continues to exist as long as the dancers continue moving as the the dance demands. Um, another example that you'll see in a lot of different writers in in Jewish and Christian traditions is the example of a, a narrator telling a story. That right that the sort of the narrator's speaking uh, gives being to the story, and so this kind of activity that God is engaged in, the activity of of willing the world, constitutes the history's existence. It's what it is for history to be happening, is for God to be willing in this way. Um, so that's the kind of explanation, and that's going to be a non-causal explanation. The second thing the explanation needs to be is non-necessitating. And that's why we need a free and rational choice. The universe exists because of the free and rational choice of a necessary being. Because of by, by free, I mean a choice among alternatives. And by rational, I mean a choice made for reasons. And this is a kind of pattern of explanation that is familiar to us that meets the criteria that fully explains why the thing happened without necessitating it. And so if you think about uh, if you think about like a trial, a criminal trial, the the prosecutor needs to explain why the defendant allegedly committed the crime, right? Uh, yeah. by providing a motive. The, if if there's no conceivable motive for the crime, it's very unlikely that the jury is going to believe that the defendant really did it. What we need is a motive. And the motive is the reason for which the defendant allegedly acted. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, and that reason explains the defendant's action. But if we thought that the defendant didn't have any alternative courses of action available, literally couldn't do anything else, we would not think they were responsible for the action. And so we wouldn't think it was appropriate to punish them. And so this kind of uh, pattern of free and rational action, of action taken freely, but for reasons, is a, a pattern of explanation we're already committed to that fits the bill in terms of fully explaining the action without necessitating it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's clear. Okay. So now let's turn to the negative argument and explain why, explain how you defend premise two in that naturalism cannot explain history. Yeah. So the problem here again is that the criteria that we need to meet, we need an explanation that is non-causal and non-necessitating. And the, the problem is that naturalism just doesn't have anything that fits the bill if we're looking at the kind of explanations that exist in science. I think there are grounding explanations in science. Um, for instance, the one that's, um, and I mentioned the, the explanation of the existence of water. 
another one that's kind of been discussed in the literature is the way uh, DNA constitutes genes. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's a kind of complex relation because genes play a certain functional role in uh, in genetics that is kind of quite different from the biochemical picture when you're talking about DNA molecules. Um, and yet they're, uh, they have this relation between them. Naturalists are typically going to think that um, the mind or mental properties are grounded in the brain. And so, so I think they do have grounding explanations. But it seems like the naturalist grounding explanations, the sorts of uh, examples that we have, are all probably going to be necessitating explanations. The non-necessitating explanations that we get in naturalism are uh, they, they're like indeterministic causation, right? And so it seems like if the naturalist is going to say the kinds of, uh, of ex- uh, patterns of explanation that we're going to admit are the ones that we find in our current best science, they're not going to find anything that is going to fit the bill. Uh, and I think this is quite important because the, the big cost of theism relative to naturalism is that it goes beyond science, right? That it's it's committed to it's it's committed to their kind of being more to reality than what science can reveal to us. Uh, that's a cost. And the question is, do you really have to pay that cost in order to defend history? And so the the kind of burden of in order to explain history. And so the kind of burden of my argument is to say, yes, that's really true. That uh, that you can't have an explanation for history as a whole without being committed to something that is uh, is going to go beyond what's known to science. Mm. Okay. All right. So now I'm curious, how did, I'll go back to the main screen here. How did uh, Dr. Oppie object to your argument? Yeah. So he, uh, so he thinks that, um, that I'm not quite uh, not quite getting the commitments of his naturalism right, and there's a way in which he he provides a an important clarification here, that really what I'm saying is that his brand of naturalism is inconsistent, because his brand of naturalism does have an explanation of history as a whole. He thinks that uh, he thinks that the first event whatever the, the kind of beginning, some initial segment of, of reality in time is metaphysically necessary, couldn't have been otherwise. And everything kind of follows from it causally, from that, that origination causally. And he further thinks that saying something is necessary explains why it's so. Now, uh, there are two ways in which I think his picture is, uh, is inconsistent. With, with naturalistic commitments. The first way is that um, he kind of has no basis for thinking that our uh, current best science is suggestive of or even consistent with the idea that there's a necessary initial segment of reality. So um, the, the kind of Big Bang theory that says that the, uh, that the universe is expanding from an initial uh, from an initial uh, singularity or whatever, um, that's only one possible structure that is permitted by the laws of physics as we know them, right? Uh, 
And there are these other kind of solutions to the equations that seem to describe other ways the universe could be. And so, um, and so what's happening here is that, uh, you know, the philosopher is coming up with this theory of possibility and necessity, dictating to the physicists something that isn't found in, in the current physical theory. Now, this physical theory is to a certain extent unsettled. And so I think, you know, if, if Graham was going to point me to something, because I'm, I'm not a cosmologist, uh, if you know, and, and neither is he, if he was going to point me to something that the physicists are doing where they're like, here's a direction in the development of theoretical cosmology that points to this idea, then I think, you know, now he would be consistent with his naturalism and kind of favoring one position over others. But I at least don't know of, of kind of any reason for thinking that um, that kind of, uh, you know, eternal steady state universes or expand and collapse universes or more generally kind of other initial states, uh, other initial segments of the universe uh, would be impossible according to the, the physics. This at least is a weird non-standard interpretation that's being endorsed for philosophical reasons and not physical ones. And that's not something a naturalist should do. The second problem that he has is that he says, um, the, uh, the saying that something is necessary is explaining why it's true. I say, okay, that's fine. But then he says, there just are no explanations of necessary truths. And so we don't have any kind of further question about why. So we say this initial segment is necessary. And then we've done just all the explaining there is to do. And we're done. Uh, that's, uh, that's just not right. And it's not something a naturalist should say because, um, you know, it's uh, because it's not respecting, in particular, the, the practice of mathematics. And as um, I, I highly recommend this book by Penelope Maddy, Naturalism in Mathematics, that kind of argues that there's no reason for kind of respecting scientific practice as revealing facts about reality to us and then not treating mathematical practice the same. And the fact is that mathematicians distinguish between um, proofs that explain and proofs that don't. And so like a, a notorious example is the four color map theorem, which says like, if you've ever seen a, a political map that, that shows the countries and each country is, in a, is a different color and you um, can't have two countries next to each other that are the same colors, color. So how many colors do you need before you can do any map whatsoever? And the proof that no map requires more than four colors was done by brute force on a computer. It just, they just put it into a computer and it considered every possibility. And so the, the mathematicians are like, okay, we're convinced, right? But we don't really understand why this is true. Like in terms of the geometry of the possible shapes on here, um, and what we'd really like is a, a non-brute force proof or a proof that's not by cases that kind of reveals something about geometry in a way that those brute force proofs don't. And so this claim, since all mathematical truths are necessary, if there is such a thing as explaining math facts, then, uh, then Graham is wrong to suppose that uh, that there's no further question or no further explanation to be given once we've said that something's necessary. Hmm. Okay. I, so um, 
before we wrap up, did I guess was there an additional layer of response there that that um that it went? Um yeah, so there is there is kind of a, a second reply, and uh, he does uh, he you know he mainly doubles down on this theory about explanation, and he wants to get you know he wants to say um, explaining necessary truths isn't really what's happening in these cases, um, and we discuss a lot of other kinds of explanations of necessary truths like moral truths and metaphysical truths and and uh, aesthetic truths even there truths about he takes facts about what is and isn't beautiful to be necessary facts, which is kind of interesting. Um, but um, I think that, uh, you know, for the most part, he, he kind of doubles down and, and maybe if there had been a, uh, a third round of replies after that second round, maybe we would have got deeper into some of these issues, especially about the explanation of moral truths. Um, but, uh, you know, like, like most philosophy debates, um, there's, there's always more to be said. Yeah, exactly. All right. Well, before we, um, wrap up, I just want to say thank you. This was really helpful and I, I think you've done an awesome job of explaining everything. So I greatly appreciate that. You're a really good communicator. Okay. Um, how would you like to conclude our discussion? <laughs> um, well, I just want to say uh, thank you very much for having me, and I want to emphasize that you know the aim of this book is to uh, to lay out the uh, you know lay out good arguments on both sides, and let readers be uh, be thinking through the issues for themselves. And so I hope that uh, I hope that kind of viewers of this interview will will take the time. To, uh, to think through this very important question and to consider the arguments on both sides. Excellent. I'll show the book once again. Uh, Is There a God? A Debate, published by Rutledge. Uh, I've put the link to the book in the description of this video, so I highly encourage you to go purchase it. Before you run, I wanted to ask one question. It was submitted by my friend Justin Mooney. He's a uh, grad student. I don't know if you're familiar with it. Oh yeah, actually he connected us. That's right. Yeah. So uh, here's what Justin asked. He said, Pierce says God sustains God's act of creation by performing it, just like a dancer sustains a dance by performing it. But even if the performance grounds rather than causes the dance, isn't the performance itself a series of causes and effects? If the same is true of God's performance... This introduces causation into God's creative activity. Yeah. Um, so I'm going to have to deny that. And one of the reasons I'm going to have to deny it is because I maintain that God is atemporal. And so I need, I need God to be, as it were, eternally performing one uh, simple action. So here's that simplicity thing rearing its head again. I'm going to need God to be eternally performing one simple action. And the um, kind of whole complexity of history to be constituted from that uh, from that simple action. Um, maybe in in something like these uh, emanationist views that we get in um, in classical theism. Hmm. Interesting. All right. Well, we'll leave it there. Thank you so much again for joining me. I really appreciate it. Thank you. That concludes this week's interview. 
If you enjoy this podcast, please consider becoming a patron or making a one-time donation. You can find my Patreon and PayPal pages on my website, www.theanalyticchristian.com. I've put the link in the notes for this podcast episode. Thank you to all of my current financial supporters. I couldn't do the work I'm doing without you. Thanks for listening and keep exploring Christianity.